Hi, our Stroke Survivors Day on the 7th of April 2020 is all about celebrating stroke survivors, for stroke survivors and uniquely by stroke survivors. Yeah, we're doing it for ourselves because there's rock all out there in the community to help us be the best we can be. It's down to us to share our challenges, share our achievements and explain how we can all be the best we can be. I'm fed up of the stroke prevention agenda. It's been far too focused on that in recent year, years. Yes, it's important, but you know what? We survived a hell of an ordeal and we have a lot to contribute back to society. So today, the 7th of April, is about celebrating us and our thriving and our surviving. So if you want to get involved, post a picture of yourself with the hashtag #StillMe, and let's see if our social movement can go viral. And also post any pictures or videos of yourself doing what you do. You can have the caption, I'm still me because dot, dot, dot. Even film a video of you on your phone. Just get involved somehow so we can celebrate and bring back the debate back to stroke survivors and equalise this situation up. And listen out, there's going to be podcasts, there's going to be local activities and this Stroke Survivors Day is the first of many, I hope, and it's global. We've already got involvement in America and Africa and all over the place. So get involved. What are you waiting for? I'm still me because I'll always be a devoted mum. I'm still me because I'm always going to be mischievous. And I'm still me because I'll always stand up for people affected by stroke to try and make things better for them. Hi, this is our first ever International Stroke Survivors Day podcast. Hope you all enjoy. Welcome to our very first Stroke Survivors Day podcast, an international annual event to celebrate stroke survivors, for stroke survivors and by stroke survivors. My name is Kate, I was diagnosed with locked-in syndrome 10 years ago. That's a condition where you can think, feel, see, hear everything but move absolutely nothing. Pretty horrific. But I also had an idea just a few months ago, actually a month ago, to help fellow stroke survivors try to be the best they can be too. So I came up with this idea for an annual International Stroke Survivors Day, which is already become a social movement aimed at improving outcomes for stroke survivors who are largely abandoned in the community. Unfairly, public health messages are obsessed with stroke prevention agenda, as opposed to us, amazing stroke survivors. It's proven we learn more off our peers, so we want to support the millions of stroke survivors who want to be the best versions of themselves with the skills, confidence and knowledge to do just that. Incidentally, most of us could not have prevented our strokes in the first place. Now that's a bit of food for thought. This unique podcast allows us to discuss some real achievements, issues and challenges after stroke. Listen, we're not going to sugarcoat stroke. It's not all great. 
So I'm joined today by some pretty fabulous, remarkable fellow international stroke survivors. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'm, I'm Nick Clark. Believe it or not, I used to play football a little bit. Uh, I've even played at Old Trafford, the home of Manchester United, uh, in front of 73,500. You meant to go, wow. It's not people, just seats. <laughs> I had a hemorrhagic stroke in September 2012. And yeah, God, it was scary. And felt that I didn't get the support nor my family get the support or information, motivation, even we've talked about that. So I decided to get off my backside and try and do something about it. Um, one of my, hey, there's a ghost in the room. Anyway, you're, yeah. moving, you're moving mountains. Okay, Lisa, go and introduce yourself, Lisa. Hi, my name is Lisa Deck. I am from America in Boston, Massachusetts. I am a four-time stroke survivor, having my first three strokes in my early 20s, right uh, before I was graduating from college. And my fourth stroke just five years ago was um, very challenging because at that point they diagnosed me correctly with a rare brain disease called Moya Moya disease. And I had to make the courageous decision to undergo brain bypass surgeries to correct the blood flow in my brain. So for 20 years, I have been a stroke survivor. And like these other two individuals, I have been fortunate enough to be able to fight back and try to help other stroke survivors in my volunteer work for the past two decades, actually. Oh, it's so amazing. So where, whereabouts are you from? Near Boston, you say? Correct. The town yeah. is actually called North Attleboro, Massachusetts, but it's very small. So oh, well, we're so delighted to have you because we're going to make they've made this a real international podcast. So four stroke survivors and by stroke survivors. So it's amazing. So, Nick, tell yeah. me about yours. Was it, So yours was how long ago now? Your strokes? Uh, seven, seven years ago now. Right. OK. And, and how long were you in hospital for? I was just doing for just over four weeks. Right. Was uh, it a very scary experience for you? Scary in the respect that um, I spent one night in the National Health Service Hospital. Um, and as you'll find with a lot of NHS hospitals, they put you in a room because you've had a stroke with people who are, let's say... 60 plus and all of a sudden you you're looking at people thinking he's sat over there dribbling i don't want to be here um and i i literally lasted a day in that hospital and then because of my work i had private health care which is slightly different i know in the states but um i got transferred to a private hospital and then i had my home my own room it was like a hotel I loved it as in how I was looked after, but there's no nobody there to motivate you or nobody there to measure yourself against, oh, he came in at the same time as me. He's walking. I should be walking now. Uh, okay. So it's a very tough experience. And, and how about you, Lisa? So your first three strokes, you were very young, weren't you? Um, I was. 
Yes, and I had my first stroke about a week before college graduation. So right before I was 21 and I had all this typical signs and symptoms. The first hospital sent me home. It was finally at the second hospital. They diagnosed me and told me I had a stroke, which again, I did not know that stroke could happen to young people. And I was 21 years old. Do you know, and sorry, just to interrupt there. Do you know, the youngest person I've seen personally visited had a stroke with my kind of stroke, with locked-in syndrome, was four. But anybody with a brain, an animal or otherwise, can have a stroke, even unborn. So, you know, it's amazing. That message needs to get out there. Anyone can have it at any age. Sorry, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something I've learned. I've met young children. I've met children who have had strokes in utero. So before they were born and they came, they were born with stroke deficits and it's it's really challenging and I look back and I was in the hospital for about a week the first time I couldn't use my hand after a while I gained that back I had a second stroke I was in the hospital for weeks they started treatment um, that was very debilitating and fortunately I think I had the inner motivation to keep going there wasn't necessarily the path for a young stroke survivor to follow. And it's interesting because I think that's something I've done since then is try to be there for other patients. As Rick just mentioned, they told me I could join a stroke survivors group. And the first mm -hmm. one I went to, the youngest person was probably 60 and I was 22. Yeah. And yeah. that was very challenging. Yeah. And I, at that point, I made it my mission to find other young patients because I felt so alone. And I was very fortunate to have family and friends supporting me, but I didn't have the peers and I didn't know what was expected. I didn't know if I would survive. And the decisions I was making at that time were for the moment and the hope that, you know, someday I hope I'm not disabled. Eventually I was disabled because I couldn't work because of my side effects and different problems I had. But my third stroke after that, um, I did recover pretty fully. Um, and was able to kind of get back to a, a somewhat normal life yeah. until my fourth stroke just a few years ago. Gosh, because it's interesting because you picked up on so many points there with the, you know, the peer mentoring. It's so important. It really is. Right in the acute phase to the community phase, we learn off each other and we need each other to make the, to be the best we can. I mean, my stroke story was the Saturday, the 6th of February, 10 years ago. I was running around Chatsworth House, which is a stately home in Derbyshire, with my running friends. 24 hours later, I was going to hospital with the most excruciating headache I'd had for a couple of weeks. And I was told to go home with my stress-induced migraine. I've never, ever had a migraine in my life. So I duly went home with my cocodamil. And, uh, and four hours, five hours later... I had a massive stroke at home, fortunately not running around the hills on my own, and was rushed back to hospital. The same guy went white and grey as he saw me, um, and then was put on a life support and in a coma. And that was all within 24 hours. You know, the misdiagnosis of stroke, especially young stroke, because I didn't fit the stroke profile. I wasn't given a... My BP was in normal range. My BP, because I ran such a ridiculous number of miles a week, was so low. But because it was in their normal range, it didn't get flagged up. They didn't CT scan me. So when I went back to hospital, it was too late to be thrombolized. So, you know, it's... Um, and I know from my experience, this misdiagnosis of young stroke is very prevalent, really. 
we seem to have got the messages in the community, but it's not seem to have fed its way back to the, the front line at the emergency front line, which I find really disappointing, really. So can I just ask you very briefly, how's the, um, I, what, I'm going to be negative here, but the rest of the whole, the rest of the podcast, I'm hoping to be positive mainly. But what do you find difficulty doing, you guys? What? How? Uh, Nick, can I ask you what? What do you? What do you struggle with now? Um, if there's several people in a room, for instance, and they're all having different conversations, I will struggle trying to decipher which conversation I want to join in. Um, it's as though my brain is so is trying so hard to pick up on what people are saying, I kind of miss what other people say. I have that problem. Uh, I share your pain. It, and, it, it, you know, it's a normal, I'm saying per se normal, it's, you know, the, the normal frustrations we all have. I mean, it's, the biggest frustration for me is that I'll never, I'm just going to um, really open up to what the medics say. Oh, I'll never play football again. Mm. How, how do you know? Yeah. Because the only person that really, you know, like Kate, you touched on before, oh, he'll never walk again. Mm. I'm sorry, but unless there's something medically, as in a brain is not uh, taking the right pathway to make that person walk again, how do you know that they won't walk again? Yeah. And that's so important not to lower people's expectations. Exactly. Because I read a quote the other day, and it was so true. It was actually by The Rock, uh, which is obviously an American guy. And I thought <laughs> this was so pertinent. Uh, and uh, he just said, if someone tells you you can't, they're showing you their limits, not yours. Yeah. Isn't that true? It's so <laughs> yeah. true. Absolutely. I mean, I mean what, what would you struggle with now? What, do, what are your limitations, Lisa? So the hardest thing for me, I have a couple, but I think I have not pursued my professional career because I had my strokes in my 20s and the side effects and everything was so debilitating, I wasn't able to. So that is quite a challenge because I never really started my career. And I've been fortunate, I've been able to find fulfillment in other areas by volunteering, but that is a huge frustration. Um, the other important fact, I think there's two others that I think about. And today at this moment, I am in a better place, but I think that the emotional ramifications of both times where I suffered my strokes in my early twenties and just five years ago, the emotional struggle is real and valid yet not seen by everybody. Um, to the point, you know, yeah. I think there's even some of the PTSD that happens um, cool. when, when anything goes on, you kind of have that panic, you have that anxiety. And as much as I want to control that and I want to not feel it, it's yeah. it's there and it's real. And I don't know that we always handle the, the personal side and the emotional side of stroke. I, I absolutely have to agree. The emotional and psychological sides of stroke are phenomenal. My PTSD was undiagnosed and I had massive anxieties every time I had a headache. I go to right. hospital and it was only on the 14th time I went back to A&E with a headache. The doctor, who was very nice, said, listen, Kate, I can see you're anxious, 
that unless you've had a headache for more than three days and it hasn't subdued with any painkiller, pain that's the time to worry. And that bit of information has stopped me going back to the hospital, which is great, right. and actually managed part of my PTSD. But I think certainly the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the withdrawal from society because you, you're not how you were, I think they're phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I concur with that. I think it's totally, it's only stroke survivors and other people who deal with chronic illnesses will have the same issues. I mean, for me, my biggest problem with my brainstem stroke was dysphagia, which is swallow problems. So I can breathe in and suck food down my throat and it gets stuck, often requiring endoscopies, which is not very nice. I've probably about 20 since of my stroke. So I have to chuck my chin and uh, it's like I've got a speech and language therapist on my shoulder, chuck your chin, don't talk too slowly. And also I think I struggle, I fall a bit, uh, which at the moment's fine because I'm even enough to bounce, but that worries me. And the fatigue, which is <laughs> fatigue. like... Huge. It's like you can't describe. I mean, sometimes I can literally go to bed for 14 hours and wake up as tired. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm actually in bed now. Thanks for sharing that, Nick. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have one other point I just wanted to make in terms of challenges. And I think I, I don't know for sure because we're just meeting for the first time but invisible illness. And the fact that when you look at me, I don't show any signs and symptoms of stroke on the outside, which doesn't mean there's many things inside that are challenging. And I think that it's okay. And I'm actually very happy that most of the time people don't necessarily know or judge or say. However, when I'm having a problem or when I'm having certain issues it's very challenging when yeah. nobody can see the problems that i have and so i totally question, agree with people that. questioning you you know for canceling plans or not being able to do something or having trouble at the gym or whatever it is you're doing and people not recognizing that huh. i had two brain surgeries and the way they did them were such that my you couldn't see they just did a little i mean they were 10 and 12 hour brain surgeries, but they were able to make it so you couldn't see it. I was flying home on a plane, but from the outside, it looked perfectly normal, yet I was having speech issues and it was terrifying. So I think it's just important to know that we don't always look that way from the outside. And I, you know, an, an example of that is I don't let um, my clients, when I do these speeches, introduce me as a stroke survivor because when they've done that years ago, people instantly have a presumption. I walk with a, I mean, I do have a limp, but, you know, my, my left side or my right side will be slopey and I'll speak badly and I'll stand there in a probably monotone voice talking about my story. And then I come up and they, they're blown, their minds are blown because actually their presumptions are wrong. And um, and nowadays I tell every client, just introduce Miss Kate Allen and let me do it. And, you know, it's, um, I think people do make judgments and I think that's really hard. And I think it's also really hard you know, because you feel like you're making excuses, you know, I can't do this because or you're letting people down. But actually, it's really hard sometimes to motivate yourself when you feel dog tired with your fatigue to actually, you know, function properly, even make a meal, make a cup of tea. You know, sometimes I won't even drink for 14 hours, which I know is really bad. But, you know, I just it doesn't happen that often. But when I know I've overcooked it, you know, 
I, I really suffer afterwards. I mean, I mean, I mean, my relationships have been really, really struggling. And it'd be interesting to hear what you think about this. I mean, I don't know whether you know, I'm almost through my whole divorce now, which I'll be very pleased about. Thank you. Um, but, you know, my relationships have been totally affected from being the matriarch of our family and the, the you know, the organiser, the doer, the everything, the emotional um, person. You know, my kids are four, eight and ten with completely traumatised and the, the kids I left when I went to hospital on that 7th of February and the ones I inherited when I came back as I was different was just, well, it was just heartbreaking. And then, you know, they're 21, 19 and 16 now and they've been affected forever. Um, but, you know, unless they want the help, I can't help them and it, it breaks my heart. So, all my relationships to my marriage, to my relationship to my wider family, to the fact I found out who my friends really were. I mean, Alison, my partner in crime, has been and is incredible. But then realising the people you thought were friends were actually only social climbers. And when you weren't socially climbing anymore, you weren't really um, relevant anymore. So that really hurt because I thought those people were my friends. So those are my experiences of the relationships post-stroke. I mean, what what do, have you got experiences of, you know, how your strokes affected your relationships? I, I I totally concur with what you're saying. I mean, I was kind of a happy-go-lucky person at work where people wanted to come and listen to your story of what you've been doing at the weekend, what football teams you've been watching, whatever. Um, you know, talking about going for a pint, um, or a beer or whatever and when you have the stroke I found that in the sort of about first six weeks you're the your focus of their attention because you're the latest trophy yeah. after that six weeks or eight weeks or even a month nobody wants to know you um, and that's very true they get bored of hearing it as well don't they yeah and and a classic example that I can give you is when I went to, um, I actually went to Manchester City Stadium um, for a conference uh, to see an old boss of mine. And I walked in and he just said, and this summed up what we were talking about before, he just went, bloody hell, Corky, you don't look like you've had a stroke. Mm. And I turned around to him and said, well, John, if you want, I can go and sit in the corner. I've just given his name away. Yeah. That was John, by the way, if anyone didn't hear it. Um, <laughs> I said, if you want, John, I can go and sit in the corner and start dribbling and falling asleep. And he went, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that. I, was like, I said, well, John, yeah, I've said his name again. Um, I've worked hard at my recovery. I've worked bloody hard at my recovery. Mm. And it's like you said before, Kate, we should be shouting from the rooftops because we, you know, we know, notice much in this country that they, as you say before, it's very much about prevention. How let's stop having a stroke from happening. Yeah. But what about us? We, yeah. We've survived the stroke. Exactly. Exactly. How can we? How can society help us be the best we can be? So we're not a drain on resources and the health sector and everything else. And we get back to work and we don't have depression and anxiety. And you know, it, it's we we. We could really help ourselves and the, and and our health systems if we if we 
really thought about how to manage people with chronic illnesses like you know stroke you know and cancer and everything else and i think there's a there's a lot we can learn there from peer support definitely peer support is the way forward because if you can learn from someone else who's been through it then you will learn to not necessarily fall in those puddles if you know what i mean yeah I mean, Lisa, tell us about you. I mean, are you happy to share how your relationships have been affected by your strokes? So I will say, I think I have a little bit of a different experience, but yet similar. So um, personally, I have been very, very fortunate in that family around me. And when I was young, in my 20s, it was my mom and my dad and my brother and my college friends and and family, you know, they were very supportive. Now, did it change relationships? Absolutely. But I think where I was missing in what you two are speaking to is absolutely correct, is the peer support. Mm -hmm. I didn't have it. I didn't, I I could talk to people about what what had happened to me and my friends and family who, bless them, were so amazing, but they didn't they try to understand, but they didn't understand. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing for me is that there was nobody to talk to yeah. who could got it. handle, got who it. got it. Yeah. They didn't get it. And they, exactly. and it's hard to say that because again, I had these people around me who would do anything for me. Um, interestingly enough, so that was in the late nineties. So five years ago when I had my fourth stroke, I had fortunately found some other through, through my volunteer work, I had found some other stroke survivors over the years. So when I had this stroke, at least I had other yeah. people who understood at the time. Yeah. And still not the same. And this is this is an identity crisis. I was diagnosed incorrectly with the disease yeah. in my early 90s, um, or when I was in my early 20s in the late 90s. And when I was diagnosed five years ago with this disease called Moya Moya disease, there was a support group that I found. Yeah. And it was the first time that I had an identity, that I felt like, wow, somebody gets it. And other people had gone through the surgeries before me. And I even talked to one on the phone. And it's so important. It's so important. It it made it so that I could see that somebody survived. Yeah. And I was able to see that. I gave you hope. Gave you hope. It gave me hope. And I think that's what all of us are talking to is the fact that we change, yet we don't know what's there. And I think that was the hardest thing when it came to relationships. And again, I am fortunate that I do have a lot of people around me, but I changed and that was hard to figure out. Like, how, what does your new life look like and how do does it relate to the people in your life? And that, that's challenging. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. But I think a simple message from this is, we all had to figure it out. You had to go and figure out there's actually groups on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know, one of the things the doctors, for example, in the UK could be better at is actually being more aware of those social connections that are going to help you cope with the new you after stroke. No one's ever going to be like they were. That re- the word recovery is in many ways is misleading because it's it's about being... It's about improvement to me and being the best of you. And they could help you, in my view, doctors particularly, or pharmacists, however you want to do it, because the doctors over here are totally overworked and there's not many of them, um, is actually 
pointing and signposting where people can go to get the support they need from the peers. And that should be something that is a bit more um, in your face as opposed to having to dig around and figure it out. That's what you need to do, which is many of us do. We find our way onto social media and between these groups, but it actually be a lot easier and a lot quicker if somehow you were signposted actually go look at this group, go look at that group, go and see them. Because not everybody wants to go on a Tuesday night to the local church hall and speak to the stroke support group. For me, I wanted social media because I could take it or leave it and do it as and when I wanted. You know, if I didn't well, sleep at night, I could I could go on at five in the morning and do it. You know. Well, look at this right now, what we're doing. I mean, this is amazing for me to be talking to the two of you and to be able to share what happened to each of us. Because yeah. I think it... It's all different, yet it's all the same. Absolutely. And I think when you talk about recovery, when you just said that, it made me think of rediscovery. Yeah, like yeah. we have to rediscover who we are. Yeah, exactly. Stroke. Yeah, we totally do. And I think attitudes are changing because when I first came out of hospital, and well, for two years I struggled with PTSD, which was undiagnosed. I was just left hospital with nothing. It was like, go off, off you go now. Make sure you have pureed food and you know, come back in a year or whatever. I was literally had nothing. And so for two years on, I struggled and struggled. And eventually I went to the hospital doctors and I rang them up and said, I need an appointment today. And they said, have you got a heart condition? I said, no, but I want to drive very fast my car without my children in, into that nearest wall. And they said, well, are you sure you've not got a heart condition? Because that's not an emergency. And it's like, and this was seven years ago now. I... It was, society talks a lot about mental health, but I still think the stigma is still there. And I think, um, you know, I was no less of an emergency because I didn't have a heart complaint, just because, you know, I had got this <laughs> serious, I just wanted the whole thing to end. And I think, you know, doctors and the community can be much more proactive in trying to intervene and, you know... I just think it's very hard when you're dealing with your physical changes, you're dealing with the relationship changes, you're dealing with your family changes, you've lost your career, which I did, my business, you've lost your whole sense of worth, you don't have any purpose in life anymore, what are you on this world to do? I think, um, you know, your parenting abilities from being the matriarch to being the person sat in the corner going, don't do that, you might form them, and having your life taken away from you because they're wrapping up in cotton wool. Um, the loss after stroke is not just physical, it's emotional, psychological, relation. it's all those things. And having to deal with that on your own, when you're doubly incontinent, and you can only maybe walk two yards around the kitchen on your own, and you can only come downstairs once a day and go up once a day with company, you know, it's bloody hard. It really is. Wow, mm. you just brought me right back to those moments. It's true. You said it exactly. Yeah. So, uh, do you got anything to add, Nick? I, 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 I know that we are told, especially in the UK, that you know you've got to realise that every stroke's different, and I get that. But so too is everyone's recovery journey. Yeah. True. Every, you know, it's not the same for. Joe Bloggs down the road who had a stroke that he may have had a clot or whatever. I had a, you know, even my consultant now still calls me a little bleeder. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just, the way that I look at it myself personally is that I've been given a second chance and yeah. 
that's why I want to try and make a little bit of a difference. And that's why I started the charity in, from my own perspective. And I don't want us to get too big so that we forget people as in, oh, thanks very much. We've just used you to get to the next stage. Um, in fact, we had a trustee meeting last Monday. And one of the things that came out of it was even if we sent ourselves a prompt reminder on the system or whatever, that in a month's time, we just make contact with them. Not saying if they want anything. Mm. Hi, John. That's John again. Not my boss. The old <laughs> boss. Um, Hi, John. How are you? How are things? Yeah. And it's just that little bit of extra care. Yeah. Or even if you appear to care, you might not care. But, <laughs> but even if you just say, hi, John, how are you? What you're describing there is what the health leaders will talk about all the time and and why why it's so complicated i don't understand is just compassionate care compassionate. i think we're all very compassionate individuals and yeah. i look for compassionate people and i'm magnetized towards people who've been traumatized or gone through real difficulties they get it and i'm drawn to them and it's actually not complicated compassionate care is just treating someone like you'd want to be treated it's that simple. And yet they make such a big deal out of the theory of compassionate care, you know. And actually, compassionate care has been proven in the Froome project in Somerset that actually can save costs on the bottom line. So there's actually real benefits, yeah. just not in outcomes, right. which don't affect anybody else, but the individual, well, they do in terms of the NHS um, dependency, but in terms of the bottom line, you know, why aren't we just doing more of that and you know and not just talking about it we talk about a lot of things and we need to do it is right. my view well, i mean it's like I sorry go on this oh i was just gonna say it's interesting because that's what i teach my children you know treat others how you want to be treated yeah and i think it it relays to i lose words sorry sometimes i apologize um it, it relates to what we're saying you yeah. know we just Reaching out, reaching out to each other. How are you? How are things? What yeah, can I exactly. do? It's just really it take much. It's like for me when I was in bed and I was totally paralyzed below the eyelids for a long, long time, having that one nurse look into my eyes, the soul, my, the window to my soul to see that I might have been in pain or in discomfort or bored or just needed some company. But unless you look into someone's eyes, you can't tell. And it's just, that it's not being so busy that you, you we lose the basics you know it really is yeah. not much to ask well you you i mean i, I can't speak for lisa because obviously i don't know what happens in the states with regards to groups but i'm sure kate you can um um see i've forgotten the word but i'm sure that kate can it's all right you've had a stroke you familiarize herself i got there in the end <laughs> familiarize yourself with um whenever you've asked a fellow stroke survivor what do you think that's missing nine times out of ten respect is always listed yeah, yeah. To, to be honest and like I, again it's not all the the nick clark show and um all about stroke information but the hashtag that we use as in we care because we've been there it's so powerful. It yeah. really is so powerful. Yeah, I agree. 
Like, listen, I'm going to move things on, guys, because I want to talk to you about and listen to what you what you reckon are your best accomplishments since your stroke. Come on, man. Go on, Lisa. Hit us with your accomplishments since your stroke. So I will tell you, um, when I was in my early 20s and I had my three strokes, I was finally declared in remission and I wanted to have a celebration of life. And at the time I was 24 and I threw a party and I raised at the time about $20,000 in U.S. money, which at the time was amazing. And I donated that to um, a stroke group. And then I walked a half marathon, which was a huge accomplishment, actually at Disney World. And that was a huge accomplishment because I couldn't walk at times. So this was a big, big accomplishment. Since then, my second um, big accomplishment, because of my diagnosis in my early 20s, I was, um, I went into menopause and I was not biologically able to have children. And I didn't know that if I would ever fall in love, eventually I found an amazing guy who loves me and I love him. And we started a family and now we have a family of four through adoption. So I like to tell people when all hope is gone, you can still find a way to make your dreams come true. And I, I didn't think I would have a family and now I do. And it's amazing. Um, I'm so pleased for you. It's brilliant. Brilliant. And those, I mean, those are the life accomplishments. I think the other thing that I have been blessed to do is I have been given opportunities to share my story. Um, I even went to Tokyo, Japan last year to speak. And I started a nonprofit organization to help local families and to fund research um, for heart and stroke disease, heart disease and stroke. So I've just really, um, as Nick said earlier, I've been given a second chance and I don't take that lightly and I want to help others. I want to provide hope because I don't know, we talked about this earlier and it's just another question I had to to bring up, but we talked about recovery and we talked about how when you're talking to other stroke survivors, how do they recover? And I had the question for both of you, we can talk about it after is, for me, it was an inner desire. I was not ready to give up. I, I wasn't ready for my life to be over. That and I live every day fully because of that, because I am not willing to stop. And yeah. I think that, I think I look at you two and you both have that inner drive yeah. to keep going. And I don't know if you can teach that. I don't know if you can recreate that, but I think that I have been able to accomplish things in my life for lack of a better word because I was not willing to give up Um, and I see that in both of you yeah and thank you and I totally agree with you I mean would you agree with that Nick I mean you to me epitomize that as well absolutely I mean it's you know someone once said this to me um about as when we're in hospital for instance we count every day Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's not the way forward the way forward is to make every day count Yes, yeah, I like that. You've yeah. got, you've got, you've got. I mean, especially in in our situation, we've been given a second chance. So make the most of what you've. Because in my case, seven years ago, and Kate's case, ten years ago, you know, it could have been oh so different, and that door of that coffin could have been closed, and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but I think I think you're absolutely right, and the only thing I would say to that is. You know, it doesn't mean that for me anyway, and I'm sure not for you, that every day you're firing on all cylinders and every day you want to change the world. Because, frankly, 
some days I actually want to have a duvet day and just walk my dogs and do nothing about stroke or not do anything even. Uh, and some days I'm, I might feel sorry for myself and I might tuck myself away. But um, I also know that I don't want too many of those days where I'm feeling sorry for myself because that does me no good. But if I'm, I allow myself days just to feel rubbish and it's okay to feel rubbish. It's not about saying you're this warrior 100% of the time because that would be the wrong message. It's like it's okay because you're going to be you're going to be on a graph like this. You mm -hmm. know, some days you're going to be feeling great on top of the world. You're going to change the world. And other days you're shrinking violet, want to be hidden away and, and avoid the world. And that's my life anyway. Very good point. Thank you for pointing that out, because that is absolutely true. And I, I, again, I don't I don't want to speak for, for you two, but, um, you know, we all have good days. We all have bad days. I think the, the best way to look at it is to make sure that we have more good days than bad days. That's it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of mine, my accomplishments over the years, I mean, if someone had said to me lying in ICU, don't worry, Kate, you'll be fine. You'll be, you'll be running by your first anniversary three months after leaving hospital. You'll have founded a charity within three months of leaving hospital and be registered and global. You'll have written an internationally published book. And I mean, like... There's positive thinking and there's positive thinking. But if I'm being really honest, um, my biggest accomplishments, and you can probably appreciate this given my physical situation, was actually coming out of hospital and giving my kids a hug and telling them, because I couldn't speak for months, I loved them. Uh, that's really special to me. I think my charity, Fighting Strokes, my biggest accomplishment, which was advocacy and helping other people around the world with the condition, the biggest one by far, and I shouldn't have favourites, but she was Christine Waddell. The girl had long-term severe locked-in syndrome. And after discovering me in the media, two years after that, from getting her organised with therapy, the girl who hadn't eaten for 19 years ate a big piece of chocolate cake and moved and caught a ball on a plinth and stood up having been in a wheelchair with a headrest for 19 years. Wow. You know, that for me is my biggest accomplishment. And, um, and I'm very proud of being able to do that. And we talk about making a difference. I mean, there's lots of other people that would probably may say, you know, you've helped us, you've done this. But for me, all of those are my biggest accomplishments because it just makes my life, it's been worth living. And I have been worth it when I thought I wasn't. And I have had a purpose and I have made a difference. And that makes me feel really good inside. Totally. Agree. So. And, and speaking of the lovely um, Christine, how is your muff? <laughs> this, this is an inside joke. I'm seeing that. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, that ginger muff. I will just say the ginger muff has become legendary and um, so much so that it even got a nod at a funeral, So, um, which was very, very, caused a lot of laughs and she would have laughed and laughed and laughed. But uh, yeah, that infamous ginger muff. So there's a few things I wanted to talk to you about because before this podcast, I did some research and I asked a few questions of people on social media 
And I said to them, what were your biggest challenges post-stroke? And the, the selection of responses that people with stroke had said were fatigue was a big one, managing finances, sleeping, walking, driving, their independence, relentless headaches, speech problems, reframing my expectations. Sex was a big thing. Coping with divorce, because apparently... I'm not doing it, Kate. We've only just met. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think relationship breakdown is quite common after stroke. So I thought that was quite interesting. And we're going to share these information on the actual day itself. And um, I asked the question, what is stroke to you? And the responses across social media networks were, stroke is juggling hands-on mum duties with intense rehab, managing damaged relationships, all whilst discovering your new purpose, worth and new you. Now, I don't know what you think about that. That was something I came up with that I thought, really, in a nutshell, that's what stroke was to me. Uh, and hopefully we'll get a few more responses when we do on the day itself. And hopefully people will check out our Stroke Survivors Day Twitter page and Stroke Survivors Day Facebook page. I guess the burning question, if we have any listeners left, we haven't, we haven't <laughs> sent them to sleep, um, is how can Stroke Survivors get involved in Stroke Survivors Day? Remember, this is the first time we've ever done this. A celebration of stroke survivors by stroke for stroke survivors by stroke survivors. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. Everybody's got a smartphone, I'm pretty sure. You take a picture or get someone to take a picture of you if you struggle, as you are now after your stroke. And if you can, there's apps to do this. You can write on the picture the hashtag still me. And then post that to whatever platforms you've got. Let's see if we can get this to go viral. But don't forget, you need to put the hashtag still me in your post as well, not just on your photograph. And the other way you can get involved, again with your smartphone if you're inclined, is take a video of yourself and caption this. I'm still me, hashtag still me because dot, dot, dot. I've already recorded mine, so we'll see what you can all come up with. But I just think a way to let's all get involved. We're a community, we're a movement. I'm still me because. Finally, I just want to thank my fellow podcasters. It's been an incredible chat today, and I'm so grateful for you joining us, Lisa and Nick. It's been brilliant. Um, send me invoice. Oh, I was going to smile then. That was my stroke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do, I do want to end the podcast with a quote from a fellow stroke committee, Stroke Survivors Day committee member, David Swales. And he left, he said this quote, and I thought it was very pertinent to all the people out there who might have been listening to this. Stroke is not the end. It's just a new beginning. Thank you all very much. Maybe we'll do it again. Let's hope so.